Hello everyone and welcome to The Hummingbirds, a podcast about composers and what makes them tick. Today my guest is Rebecca Tripp. My name is Fredrik Hetén and this is The Hummingbirds. So, hello, Rebecca, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Frederick. Thanks for having me. It's um, It's been a little while, dear listeners, since our last episode was released, and that is entirely on me, but I am very happy to finally get to interview my second guest, Rebecca Tripp. Now, to get just re- like immediately right into it, I just want to talk a little bit about your background and, and you know, who you who you were before we met. Uh, were you surrounded by music when you grew up? Actually, yes. Um, I have musicians in my family, but technically they didn't live with me other than my father who played guitar. But my parents were always playing music. And actually, my earliest memories, like literally my earliest memories, were of being an infant and laying on the bed and listening to the music that my mom would play while she painted. Oh, that's lovely. What kind of music did she play? My earliest memories are Wallenweider. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's... No, I don't, actually. (laughs) He's actually one of my biggest influences. He's a jazz, new age, classical, and world musician. So he, he does a little bit of everything. Kind of similar to something like David Arkenstone or Yanni, but there's nobody quite like Wallenweider. His, his music's very elaborate and sort of psychedelic. And um, so him and Enya were the things I heard the most when I was a baby and a toddler. And I definitely, I think it had a profound effect on me because I remember even at age two or whatever, listening very, very intently, picking out the notes and the layers and experiencing all these beautiful images at the same time that's lovely i am familiar with enya though very ethereal music yeah she was probably in some ways more influential on me at first but ultimately volume was as i got older more influential so you said that uh you had other family members who were into music did any of them do you feel like any of them steered you towards your current career what you're doing right now um i've got two brothers and they're actually both musicians uh but the oldest one was a musician and he didn't live with us uh and then the other one um the middle child uh he didn't get into music until a little bit later but I think he and I were both influenced by a lot of the same things, especially video game music. Uh, and the the oldest brother, Adam, he played guitar a lot, but we didn't see him very often. Um, and the sort of thing he played was more sort of rock music and that sort of thing. So it was very delightful when he played, but I didn't get to hear it very often, unfortunately. But uh, my grandmother had a piano well, she still has the piano, and uh, some of my best memories are of sneaking away into the room where she had it. It was sort of this very quiet, private, hidden room in her house that nobody really went into, and I'd play with the piano every chance I got, and sometimes she'd play classical music, and that was that definitely had an impact on me, I think. 
Oh man, I got got this really nice and vivid image of that. Uh, I, I gotta ask, since it's an old piano, was it terribly out of tune? Do you remember? It was fairly well tuned, actually. It's out of tune now. Um, every time she had to move it, it would be a little bit detuned. I guess that's the way of it, really. <laughs> yeah. My, my grandmother has always kept everything immaculate, <laughs> every single thing she owns. So uh, is uh, is there a big age gap between you and your brothers? Uh, yeah. Um, the oldest one is 14 years older than me. Um, but the the other one is only one year older than me. So when we grew up, we were practically like twins. We pretty much the same age, playing together, playing the same video games, watching the same shows, you know. Oh, that's lovely. What instruments did you learn to play? The first one was piano. I taught myself. I started very early. Every time I got to go to my grand's house, uh, I, like I said, I'd go to the piano and I very slowly worked out tunes. And the first thing I learned was an Enya song. It was called... Uh, Bard dance. I didn't know what it was called back then. Uh, I just remembered the melody. <laughs> and I also remember just hearing little bits and pieces of music here and there and, and matching the notes. So, so I always had a very good ear. So I never really needed sheet music or anything. I could just listen and, until I, it sounded right. And eventually my parents got me a keyboard and that was probably the best gift I ever received. And all I did was sit at the piano. That's all I cared about after that. And that was about a year before we got video games. So I was 10 when we got, no, sorry, I was eight when we got the keyboard. And then video games entered the house when I was nine, but I didn't really start playing them until I was 10. And when that happened, all I wanted to do was play video game music on the piano. I guess that leads us very neatly into the next uh, next question I had for you, which is, uh, what is your earliest video game memory? And I, I specifically mean like related to game music here. Well, that's an interesting question because I've always noticed the music in video games. And my brother Adam, whenever we did visit him, he'd always be playing games. But again, because I didn't see him often, I, it was only in little shreds. So I'd say the earliest profound video game music memory was when my brother got, the middle brother, when he got Super Nintendo. He got Super Mario World and Link to the Past. And I loved Super Mario World. Oh, and Donkey Kong Country too, actually. Oh man, Donkey Kong Country. Yeah, we're, we're both big fans of that. <laughs> but all of those soundtracks had a very, very, very prominent impact on both of us. But Link to the Past is the one that stole my heart. That's the one that turned my world upside down. When I heard that music, it, it's like something changed inside me. I, I knew that I was, I guess I knew that I had to do music. It wasn't quite conscious, but I was transfixed. I, I couldn't stop thinking about the soundtracks. It was almost maddening. It's kind of hard to explain. But I, I just, I'd be walking around in the backyard and in the forest and these songs would be looping through my head and I felt this indescribable urge to 
do something about the music, but I didn't know what. I completely get that feeling, uh, and I was the same. Uh, for me, it was Secret of Mana that really got me uh, got me hooked. Cool. I was gonna say, like, I was gonna ask if there was like any game composer, video game composer that specifically influenced you as an arranger, arranger and composer. And I mean, we've talked about Koji Kondo, but now we've I've I've seen you talk about Yoko Shimomura as well. I really love her work, especially in Legend of Mana. Um, and speaking of Secret of Mana, that's definitely a favorite soundtrack for me too. So when I was ten, I had that experience with Zelda and I came, became fairly obsessed, but it wasn't until I was 12 when I really realized I was a composer and that was because of Nobuo Uematsu and that, that was the real game changer. That, that was a new plateau in my development. Which, uh, which soundtrack specifically? Oh, I started with um, Final Fantasy VI and IV at the same time and, and I'm pretty sure they were equally prominent. How um, how about your education then, and how it helped you? I actually didn't receive any musical education. Um, when I was 16, I started piano lessons, and uh, I'd already taught myself up to about a grade four level, and I took formal lessons up to about a grade four level, and then I stopped. <laughs> um, so all I really did was learn what I was doing wrong. <laughs> but aside from that, <laughs> I've never actually had any education at all uh, besides elementary school and high school. So we talked about you studying a particular instrument and you uh, you mentioned piano. Did you study anything else or are you self-taught on every everything else that you play? I'm self-taught on everything. So uh, I also have tin whistles and a couple different types of flutes and recorders, and I've got a harp. And I've got no Karina, but I'm not very good at it. This is super fascinating. <laughs> it's so much fun to hear like where the origins uh, are for all of us. Like we, it seems like we all share sort of a common beginning. We all heard some melody or something when we were kids, and that just inspired us to keep uh, well to do what we're doing now. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, keep going, please. <laughs> oh, uh, Final Fantasy. So I think the biggest impact it had on me was emotional because the music was not like anything I'd ever heard. All I knew was some part of me related to it on such a deep level, it was almost indescribable. And there were some particular tracks that really stood out to me. Um, the opening theme in FF6, when the piano comes in at the end, I remember how much longing I felt, how wistful I felt. It was very ethereal, very strange. And the way I felt with the Link to the Past music, where, where I felt, oh, I've got to do something about this, it, it, it was like it was kicked into overdrive. It was, it was almost agony. Agony that I wasn't creating music. Wow. And... Uh, FF4, very similar, especially with the cave theme. I remember just walking around in the caves listening to that, and, and I knew something was up, something in my life had to change. And, I mean, I was already kind of learning songs on the piano. I was composing a little bit, but after that, it, I started composing constantly. Came up with soundtracks for video games that never existed. They just existed in my head. 
So how old were you when you really started like writing music? 12. That's amazing. So yeah, I, I, this isn't really in, a, in the list of the questions here, but I really want to know, what was your first DAW? Like, what was your first software that you got started with? It's funny because I didn't really have anything like that until I was in my 20s. But um, I had Noteworthy Composer. I found that when I was 14. And I can't describe the joy when I realized something like that existed. It, it, that's just a MIDI arranging program. I know what it is. I, I've, I've used it myself when I was much younger. Oh. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not... A lot of people don't really use it anymore, but I still use it to this day. So I, I've been using it for 16 years Oh, now. you still use it now? That's fascinating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just can't help it. I like the interface. I like what I can type on it, right? I It's so much faster than any other MIDI arranging program for me. And uh, when I discovered that it was, it was like Santa Claus was real again. You know? Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, it was all I wanted to do was piano. Um, but after that, all I wanted to do was sit on the computer and arrange and compose because it was so much faster than I used to write down sheet music by hand. Um, I remember one Christmas, my parents got me some blank paper with staffs on them. Mm-hmm so that I could write the music, which was a really thoughtful gift. But once I got this, that became obsolete. You, you said that you've, ne you've never studied music. So uh, you wrote sheet music on your own. Did you teach yourself how that worked too, or? Yeah. How? <laughs> well, um, when I was in elementary school, it, there was a basic music class. So I guess it's not completely accurate to say I've had no training, but they just teach you the, you know, the, uh, all cows eat grass, you know, <laughs> all mm -hmm. that, all these little mnemonics and they teach you the basics. From there, I was able to figure it out. And I wasn't good with sheet music, but when I got Noteworthy Composer, I was able to figure out a lot more because everything was sort of labeled. Like This is a 16th note. That, uh, you, and it was so much simpler to, to just type something in, play it back and figure out what everything does. Yeah, you you do get like an immediate sense of like immediate feedback from it. So yeah, exactly. And then from there, if there was a term I didn't know, I could just go onto Google and find out what it meant. And uh, then I started looking at scores from classical music, and I'd see something, and if I didn't recognize it, I would well I'd look it up or I'd, I'd try to find it in noteworthy. So you did, uh, you like read along with sheet music and tried to like, you know, like read the music and see where like the techniques that you were lacking and things like that. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> I, I realized that wasn't really a part of the, the question list here, but that was really, really cool. <laughs> uh, no, uh, this is why I love talking to, to different composers because, uh, you, we are all so different, and yet we are all very similar uh, in a way. Uh, would you say that you have a very good uh, sense of like pitch, not like you know, not perfect pitch, but like relative pitch, or yeah? But because I'm self-taught, I don't always remember the terms for everything. So it's like I can hear, okay, that's a fourth, that's a third, or whatever, but I won't always remember what it's called. I'll just recognize one versus the other. I can tell them apart. 
same thing with like a key signature or something like that. Um, I'll hear a piece of music and I'll be able to tell what scale it's in, but I'll have to really sit there for a long time to actually figure out what that scale is called. <laughs> no, I mean, there's there's no shame in that whatsoever. I think it's, it's just fascinating to hear uh, what your process is like. Yeah, so I'd hear a piece of music and I'd be able to just kind of sit there and, and be like, okay, what's that? That's a, that's this note. Okay, and that's the root note. And then it, like I, I have to kind of reverse engineer, I guess. All right. So I guess I want to find out a little bit more about the process of how you compose music. Then I want to kind of like have you talk me through what happens. Like if we start from like the initial idea, like where does that spark come from for you? This is an interesting one because it's an incredibly varied question or it's an incredibly varied answer. It's a bit of everything. Sometimes a tune will just appear out of nowhere. It'll just be in my head and it's like, okay, I guess I'll write this down. Um, and often it's not just a tune, often the harmony will be there and everything. Um, sometimes I'll even have a dream and I'll wake up with a song in my head. That's actually pretty common. And the dreams are pretty wild, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's really interesting stuff and then sometimes it's like there's nothing in my head but when I sit down at either the piano or the harp or I use the tin whistle or I sit at the computer I can the tune will just come it's like it just flows out of me I, I don't really think I just start typing or I start playing and, and it's there and it's like it was always there is there some sort of like sketching face for you? I mean, I guess you already kind of answered this. Like, do you, you seem to work more like what I, what, what I like to refer to as from left to right, which is you just, you just write and things happen. Most of the time I do that. And I do that with most creative things. Like when I write short stories or essays or whatever, I'll just start and then finish. I rarely plan anything. It's, again, it, I don't know where the journey is going. It's like I'm following it. It's not obeying me. I'm obeying it. And same thing with if I draw a picture, often I'll just start in one corner and finish in the other. However, there are sketching phases sometimes. It's it's tends to be the exception rather than the rule, but sometimes, especially if it's a commission or or something where I have a very, very specific need or vision, then I'll sometimes either lay out just the main melody and the choruses or whatever, and then kind of fill in the layers. This is often more true with the video game remixes because typically there's already a kind of arc to them, right? That I'm just working around, but sometimes with originals. And sometimes I'll even do chunks of the music separately from each other. So sometimes I'll write the, the big chorus, the big climax first and then add stuff behind it. And sometimes it's, a lot of the time it's sort of a little bit of everything. So it's sort of left to right, but uh, there's a lot of revisions. And if I'm writing a big orchestra piece, sometimes I'll, I'll have a very plain intro and then get into something very complex, or I'll have a very plain transition or interlude, but I know I'm going to fill it in later. 
um, it, it's really quite a mixed bag. That's fascinating. I mean, sometimes uh, when we do that, and I sometimes do that too, you 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 have to kind of like be a little careful so you don't like get carried away or like a musical idea just you know takes takes too long to develop or things like that. So that's why I'm asking yeah. about the sketching. Yeah, sometimes you can forget it if because you get all these ideas at once. And um, I mean, sometimes that that's okay, right? Sometimes, yeah. So where do you get your inspiration from? I guess you you talked about dreaming before, but you know, do you can you can you enforce it in any way? <laughs> I think so. Uh I it's hard for me to answer that because I I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, but there's never really been a point where the inspiration wasn't there. So it's it's like at all times there's a, a creation waiting to be born. I, the only obstacle is I can't work fast enough to get them all out. I mean, that's not boasting. I, I envy you, but it's not boasting. <laughs> it, it's been like that my whole life. Even very early childhood, there's always been dreams, ideas, images in my mind that I want to draw stories, I want to write. It's it's just never not there. The, the only times I've experienced creative blocks were during health problems or depression and that kind of thing and even then the ideas were there i just didn't have the motivation to to do anything with them yeah we'll we'll definitely get to that later i think um so i want to kind of focus in on that whole dream thing again because uh in one of your track descriptions on youtube uh which i uh trawled extensively before this interview <laughs> um i listened i listened to a, a track called the shapeshifter which is a like a star uh, star trek uh, deep space nine inspired composition and you mentioned that the song came to you in a dream and you said so before as well in this interview and you, you said also that it also happens fairly frequently like how do you translate what you hear in your mind as you wake up to something that can be written down that's interesting to me oh Okay, well, first of all, are you a Star Trek fan? Because now I want to know. Um, I, I, I wouldn't call myself a fan. I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy it well enough. I, I just won't seek it out, I guess. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> I really like um, pretty much everything from the 80s and 90s, and that's it for Star Trek. But yeah, okay, so I've had a lot of times where I'd just wake up and the tune would be in my head and I wouldn't remember the dream and... And there'd be a mad rush to get to the computer to write down the melody before I forget it. Um, other times I might get a voice recorder and sing it into the phone and then fall asleep again. That's a, that's a good thing to talk about, I think, like getting have, having tools nearby and just recording things. Do you have your, your have, you have your phone and like a voice recording software on it, like just close by? Right? Yeah, that's right. And that, that makes it a lot easier. Sometimes I'll record my voice, sometimes I'll run over to the harp or the piano and do it that way, depending on how hummable it is. Uh, and sometimes I, I actually have the dream, and I remember the dream, and, and the song is a part of the dream. And it, um, sometimes even the narrative of the dream is about the music. And then sometimes it's just playing in the background. In the case of the shapeshifter, it was playing in the background, but it was going, it was synchronized with the movements of the shapeshifter character. It was almost like I could see the music in his movements. That's fascinating. Do you write, like, when you write down, like, notes, uh, 
or stuff. I, I mean, I guess you don't do a lot of sketching and note taking, but I mean, I, I would imagine you would write down like what the visuals you had, like playing through your mind as you heard the music, like you would take notes on that as well. Sometimes. I, I don't know if I mentioned to you before the interview, I have synesthesia. You didn't, but that's fascinating. <laughs> that makes it a lot easier to do most of this stuff. So sometimes if I want to make a note about what I'm going to do with a song, maybe I don't have time to open up Noteworthy or whatever, sometimes I'll describe the texture or the temperature or or something of the music, and that, that's almost like a shorthand for me. That's fascinating. Can you give me a few, uh, few examples, perhaps? Um, when I was doing... Um, I did a, a vocal version of Saria's song from Ocarina of Time, Mm-hmm. and I was writing down my lyrics, and as I was working on the lyrics, the melody was sort of coming to me, all the different interludes I was planning, and in brackets for each one, I would write, okay, this is where the light shines more brightly, this part's more shady, um, there was a part where the harp would come in, and and this, that part was very colored for me. So it, it says, do two arpeggios. The first one's blue, the second one's purple. Oh, that's fascinating. So the, the blue one would sound less resolved and the purple one would sound more final. Oh, is, is that consistent with you? Like blue blue things are less resolved and more tense and then as you move toward red? Not always. It, it's very, very, very context dependent. So in some contexts, blue would be more resolved. It, it The thing with... with these experiences is that everything is confluent so everything's connected to everything else around it and sometimes different colors can mean different things different uh volume or temperature can mean a different thing actually um on that note one thing i find very almost frustrating is it can get me a little bit confused sometimes when i'm writing sheet music I get volume and temperature mixed up all the time. And I talk to myself a lot while I work and I'll be writing, I don't know, tuba or something. And I'll say, oh, what temperature was this? And I have to remind myself, oh, I'm talking about dynamic. That is so fascinating. I actually, yeah, I know a few people who have like a synesthesia element to their composition, like method. And it's really cool to hear because it's so it seems so individual like everyone like interprets their own visions or of, of colors and and sounds differently mm-hmm. yeah i have a lot of theories about why and how it works but that, that might be a discussion for another time <laughs> um, a lot of those childhood memories are connected to this too you asked if i grew up with music around me well the, the visuals of the the memory were as prominent as the music the reason it sticks out to me is i was watching in my mind, all these things unfurling around me while I was laying on my mom's bed. Ah, wow. Yeah, I want to talk about that for hours, but uh, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna move on to the next. Uh, um, so, <laughs> uh, but we we can te- we can definitely come back to that uh, later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, when I was listening to your music, and again, I've listened to a lot of it uh, as much as I had time for. Anyway, uh, that's uh, a bold I undertaking. That's... So, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, you have a large body of work. <laughs> Over 700 videos on YouTube, and that's only two-thirds of my music. So, yeah, That is absolutely amazing. It's an <laughs> astounding amount of music. And I really, I really do admire you for having written so much music. Uh, 
But uh, one thing I noticed was uh, that you very frequently, like, you write a lot of, like, orchestral, well, what I would define as orchestral music, but you also don't shy away at all from including, like, synth, like, synthetic influences in your tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes for both your original works and your arranged uh, tracks. And I kind of want to know, what, like, how do you decide when it's appropriate to do that? And, and do you design those synth patches? Do you, do you do any synth design work at all? Some of them I definitely go in with the intention to do it, but a lot of the time, it, again, it's a texture thing. So I, you asked if I did any sketching and I kind of said no, kind of, sort of, but I do have a very clear picture in my head of the visuals of the sound. So often I'm working from that as a reference point. I didn't really think about that till now. Uh, So sometimes, okay, say I I want, that last one I did was Maclania Woods from FF10. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was going to be pastel blue and smooth and shiny and a little bit sparkly and wet. And I have a very clear idea of what's required to make that kind of sound and I knew that synth would achieve it better. So do you design any synth patches on your own? Do you do any kind of like synth design work or do you choose between presets that work? I choose between presets and I add a lot of effects, so I kind of make them my own, but a lot of the time I don't do it. My brother does that. My brother's made tons of his own. He's a programmer. He's he's much more technical than I am. It's, it's kind of like he's the scientist and I'm the artist, and we kind of complement each other, sort of yin-yang style. It's kind of neat. But uh, I'm not as technical, so I, a lot of the time I'm too impatient to put the effort into to program stuff when there's something right there that sounds good. I just kind of play around with what's available till I find something I like. And if it's not quite right, I'll add effects or I'll often double up a bunch of instruments to kind of make a new one. Have you ever used any of the synth patches your brother has made in any of your compositions? Not yet. I think I might eventually. That sounds like a match made in heaven, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've collaborated a little bit in the past and I want to do more of that with him in the future. That's super cool. Um, to move on through your, well, yeah. And again, enormous body of work here. I did, um, I did kind of notice a theme that you frequently like return to themes of nature, uh, and like flower seasons, weather. And I was wondering if like, well, do you spend, first of all, do you spend a lot of time in nature to get inspiration? I guess you maybe don't, maybe it just comes to you. And, but I kind of want to know why uh, these, these are often so, so often themed around themes of nature. Nature is one of my major passions in life. It always has been. Um, when I was a child, I lived in a rural area. We had a large property. It was a kind of time and place where anyone could kind of afford to live like that at least where I was and we had a really large forest and I spent a significant number of hours often with my brother just going through the forest playing in the long grass It, it was very very magical for me and I became extremely interested in flowers from an early age um and my yard had a lot of different wildflowers and 
sometimes flowers that others had planted that had sort of spread. And each year, I knew where everything was, every single thing, all the different wildflowers, all the different bulbs, whatever, I knew where they were going to be. And I had this very beautiful map in my head of, a flower map of the property and the whole neighborhood, what was where. And there's a lot of nostalgia about that for me because that whole neighborhood was eventually paved over which used to be a green paradise. And I, I do think some of this music is an homage to that experience and wanting to create an unchangeable sound equivalent of this nature that's been destroyed. Wow, that's such a shame. But yeah, it's I guess it works as a sort of a musical snapshot of how you perceived it. So that's a beautiful way to preserve it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so each each nature piece has a different kind of approach and aesthetic because sometimes I'm trying to capture the feeling of my childhood or, or of the memories of the things. Sometimes I'm trying to capture a more almost botanical kind of snapshot of the plant. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it's uh, a cultural thing where I'll be focusing on the meaning associated with the whatever thing in nature it happens to be and i guess uh following that uh i noticed that you had uh, a series of compositions based on the zodiac which i also thought was very fascinating like what was your thinking when you came up with those pieces i really really like sweets that are based on a theme i've always been intrigued by that uh the planets by holst was one of my favorite classical suites for most of my life and I became very obsessed with it, and I wanted to create something really similar. I actually did a few different albums like that, but the Zodiac's the only one I've ever uploaded. I, uh, I, I hear you with Holst. I uh, loved Jupiter uh, when I grew up. <laughs> my favorite was always Neptune, uh, but I, mean, I don't know all of them. It, I think my favorite changes each time I listen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember hearing, like this is a bit off topic, but I remember... Oh, was it a video game concert I attended, I think, when they uh, they were like, well, did you notice that classical musicians have been writing video game music all along? And here you have Mars, Springer of <laughs> War, as an example of that. <laughs> you're like... so right. You're, you're so right. Video game music is the new classical for the most part. It, I mean, it's not just classical, there's other genres, obviously, but... Uh... That's what I find so fascinating with video game music in general. It can be anything, really but it definitely has roots in classical music and uh, the more romantic symphony orchestra things. Yeah, a great, a huge amount of it. Koji Kondo, Koichi Sugiyama very much so. Oh, for sure. I mean, he is, I mean, he is basically a romantic composer who happens to work with video games, really. Definitely. He's one of my favorites of all time. And of course, Uematsu, his classical influence couldn't be more obvious. Classical psychedelic prog rock metal and uh medieval that's him for sure uematsu is such an interesting case too because i i seem to recall that he too was kind of self-taught like he studied the like keyboards and stuff but he kind of figured it out on his own as well yeah i read read that about him too it made me feel better about my own lack of education. I, I mean, seriously, uh, one of my favorite composers of all time, uh, Hitoshi Sakimoto, uh, is also self-taught. He uh, he started out like a 
like a synth guy who just who wrote like techno and dance and disco and whatnot and then he just decided one day to teach himself how, how to write the most gorgeous orchestral music in the world and that's how final fantasy tactics happened so i, I think we're okay <laughs> he's spectacular i think my favorite sakimoto soundtracks are odin sphere and ff12 vagrant stories absolutely brilliant too if you haven't listened to it you really have to <laughs> yeah i haven't heard much of that one unfortunately but i've heard a little bit and it was very good well oh no no i want to i want to gush about my favorite composers now let's not do that uh <laughs> <laughs> let's instead move on to my next question group here which is about the lamp of destiny audio drama so when i was listening to your music uh i stumbled across this like well these are really cool like zelda inspired pieces and i read that they were uh music from an audio drama called lamp of destiny that you were working on and i really want to pick your brain about that what is this drama last year around christmas time i suddenly exploded with inspiration. I have no idea what triggered this, but I, I just woke up one morning and said, I'm making a Zelda audio drama. And, and it's one of the biggest projects I've ever worked on. Uh, and I've already written eight chapters of what will probably be about 17. Oh, wow. And confessed and got a bunch of voice actors. I've actually got some really good ones, by the way, which I'm really happy about, because I did not expect this to happen. Uh, and I've started writing a bunch of music for it. It's just going to be like a old-fashioned style radio play. It's, this is the project I'm most excited about right now, actually. I want to hear <laughs> everything, far. like everything you're comfortable talking about, I, about this. I want to hear oh, about yeah. it. Okay, well, uh, The Lamp of Destiny is the name of the main item in the, this story. I want it to feel kind of like a real Zelda game that could have been made. The same kind of story. I wanted to actually take all the Zelda games that exist and kind of put them through a kaleidoscope and make a new one that feels authentic. So I've always been very, very interested in archetypes and like the hero myth and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm focusing on that. I'm trying to make an archetypal Zelda plot. All the characters should feel like versions of characters that have ex existed before, all the places, all the struggles Link has to face should feel like typical Hyrule fare, but still kind of new. And the, my main purpose is to tell a hero myth story, t tell a story that I'm hoping will be moving, that will kind of get into the subtext that's always kind of been present in the Zelda series. That's fascinating. I, I guess I have to ask because, you know, I have to. Does Link speak? Yeah, he actually talks more than everyone because he's always there. I mean, if it's only audio, he's got to talk. Yeah. But the cool thing is, I I had a lot of fun exploring, again, the subtext, because the truth is Link actually does have a personality, but you have to read between the lines to get it. I actually did a series about this. Um, I'm four episodes in. It's called Legend of Zelda, the Psychology and Philosophy. And... I talk a lot about the things that I'm going to be communicating in this audio drama, J just the kind of deep meanings hidden in the Zelda series, what Link's life is really like, who he really is, and how the player relates to everything. So I'm, I want to take all this philosophy stuff and really give people a ride that's going to 
make them think and make them more introspect and everything. That is super fascinating. And I am really, really excited about that now. <laughs> um, I, um, is that series you mentioned, is that up on your YouTube channel as well? The psychology and philosophy one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's That's super probably good. the... Out of all the things I've created, I'm probably most proud of that to date. Um, Listeners, I also did... you know what to do. Go listen and watch that immediately. <laughs> I also did one for the Final Fantasy series, which I finished. Oh, that's also cool. It's got eight episodes, and it goes into the unconscious symbolism and mythology and uh, self-projection and, and all this different sort of Freudian and Jungian stuff. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I guess now I uh, I have a few things to add to my uh, things I will watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry uh, about I, that. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's super cool. I, I love these th uh, these kinds of things. Uh, I do want to talk more about Lamp of Destiny, though. I want to know what it's like to head up something as sprawling as an audio drama on your own. Because an audio drama, if, if, um, if you, dear listener who's listening to this right now, if you haven't listened to an audio drama, it is a very big involved production you have like you have music of course and you have sound design but you also have voice acting you have like written lines you have dramatic set pieces you have all sorts of things and it's a lot of things like it's a lot to keep track of and i i kind of want to just hear what it's like <laughs> from your perspective to keep track of all of this <laughs> i've got to be honest with you it's a lot of work but it doesn't feel like work at all and that's because i'm really passionate about it and because of that, it's like I can keep all the details in my head. I have one notepad document <laughs> that has all the information I need. <laughs> one document, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Um, and then, of course, the, the actual... Uh, I've got a lot of other files for the script and all the sound clips and everything, but I, I don't really have a hard time staying organized with this project. It, it's weird because I'm not an organized person. I'm very, very right-brained in a lot of ways. But with this, it's like I've got this kind of hyper-focus right now. Every time I'm passionate about a project, I turn into a very productive, focused person. But the rest of my life just kind of, kind of falls apart. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not seriously. I'm kind of exaggerating. But, no, yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I do want to ask because you're working. I mean, in this in in this kind of project, you're working with other people, like uh, voice actors and things, and so you have to communicate with them. And I'm curious to hear uh, what tools you use to do that, and. Uh, what your experience has been like have you have you had any of them record anything for you yet or yeah i've received quite a lot of lines um it, it's very very casual i just every time i do business with people i just talk to them like they're friends and we just it's very chill it's over facebook mostly and emails so it's it's not this huge like like trello board where everyone like commits changes no. and oh no i can't stand that <laughs> <laughs> when i've worked on other projects and everyone has this like repository of information and, and everyone has to go to meetings every day and i can't stand that i'd rather just be the only one who has to worry about it and just check on the people as needed that's fascinating uh mostly because i think i myself i don't think i could see myself like 
I, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy using those kinds of tools, but it's super cool to talk to people who don't. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like, um, because I'm the one who's actually doing most of the work other than the voice acting. And I've got one very, very talented friend who's going to be doing soundscapes and some of the sound effects. But other than that, most of it's going to be me. So it's a lot easier to keep track of. The, the only other thing is the voice acting. And it's very easy to just email so-and-so if and when I need something from them, rather than having to manage some sort of pseudo website. Do you have some sort of system for uh, dialogue? Like when, when voice actors record in, in like professional settings, they frequently get these kind of sheets with like cues and things like that. How do you deal with that? I just give them the whole script. Um, actually, um, that's something I'm really happy about. The script is working really well because I, I have a, it's just written as though it's a movie script, and for each character, that they, they have their own color for their dialogue, so it's easy to find. And, and then I have lots and lots of information about what the character is doing as they speak, what they're feeling, all the context so that they understand what's going on. That way, even if they just uh, jump to their own lines, they're not feeling lost. I could read an example if you want. Oh, please go ahead. Okay, so let's find something. At one point, a Hylian soldier shouts out, Back, demons! And it says in brackets, shouted with conviction. And it says, We hear several human soldiers fighting in the background. Swords are clashing and men are shouting. And then in asterisks, it says, Battle noises. And then in brackets, it says, Make a few different ones. This will be going on for a while. So that kind of thing. And, and then sometimes there's very complex, nuanced emotion that I want. There's a flashback with a young Ganondorf and he's asking all these Gerudos to train him because he, he's just obsessed with getting stronger. And so it, it says fighting noises and then it says extremely aggressive and angry, slightly less deep than usual. He is a lot younger in this flashback. And then Gerudo warrior, fighting noises. Sounding tense, she is very much on the defensive. She grunts in pain. She is being knocked down. We hear a thud as the Gerudo warrior hits the sand. Then Ganondorf yells again, and it says in brackets, profound arrogance, juvenile battle dust. And then he yells, get up, and it says control freak tone. And then the, the Gerudo warrior pants, and it says to do it ang angry and fatigued. And then she does a battle cry. It says, start out strong, but then sound wounded at the end. So yeah, I think you get the idea. No, yeah, I, I get it. It's uh, it's fascinating because it is kind of like a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a bit of a movie script thing, but it's also very much like it's instructing the uh, the voice actors and also the, I guess, the sound designer and yourself, like what the scene is going to be. It's very cool. Yeah, that's what I'm going for. I, I want them to really be able to, mentally project themselves into the scene because when it's an audio only format it's really necessary for them to use their imagination their imagination has to be stimulated in every way possible so because i consider myself a writer as much of as much as a composer i personally when i do like huge projects like this 
I feel like it's always important to kind of take a step back and kind of think about what what you've learned, like if you've acquired any new skills or if you've kind of like acquired new wisdom as a result of working on something like this. So like if, if, for instance, any listener right now is going like, I would like to do something like this, where would they start? Like, what have you learned about creating an audio drama that you could pass on to, uh, to other creative people? If you're collaborating with a bunch of creative people and you want to, you want it to be your project, you have to make it happen. They're not going to make it happen. You have to harass them to do it because chances are they're working on a ton of other projects that they care about more. Chances are they're collaborating with other people. It's not fair to expect people to remember. You should expect them to be professional, but if it's your project, you can't just sit around and wait for other people to take initiative. That's a very good thing to uh, to keep in mind. Yeah. Working on video essays made it a lot easier. How so? Well, because with video essays, you, you have to do a lot of editing, you have to gather a lot of parts, you have to really stay mentally organized and you have to line everything up, all the video clips, you choose the best clips, you you line up the music exactly where you want it. In, in those philosophy videos, every single thing was meant to blend together. So, for example, each piece of music was meant to go with the visuals. Every single thing that I said, which was scripted, was designed to sync up exactly with the video footage that was going on. And often there would be two to four different layers of meaning in each of these things I've chose to put together. And yeah, all of these things are connected for me. Composing music, making videos, making the audio drama. It's all about combining the right elements. The message is communicated by the intersection of these different things. I don't know if this makes sense to you. No, it, it makes perfect sense. I'm just quiet because I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> just just making no, sure. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's super. I, I guess I, I say this a lot, but it is very fascinating to hear. And, and I completely get what you're talking about. Uh, it is definitely all connected. So let's move on to the process of arranging music. And I want to know, how do you decide on the track that you want to do? Like, I guess that's tied to the creative spark that we talked about before. But like, how do you decide what what, what track you want to arrange? It's interesting because there are just hundreds and hundreds of video game songs that I want to arrange. Generally speaking, it's songs that have moved me a lot songs that I'm obsessed with or, or songs where I feel like I have something to say about it. There are actually a lot of video game songs that are in the top tier of my favorites list but I won't arrange or haven't arranged because I feel that I have nothing to add. Uh, for example, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, most of the songs in that I am addicted to but I feel like Kumi Tanioka has she's already created something that is so similar to what I would have wanted to create and with some video game songs although I think they're perfect the way they are I have 
a desire to show them a different way, to show them through my eyes. Um, so with Tanioka's work, it's already, it already sounds like it's through my eyes. Same thing with some other soundtracks, but I Final Fantasy and Zelda in particular, and sometimes the Chrono series, it, there's a lot of times where I, what we were talking about earlier, this, this feeling of wanting to do something about the music, this feeling of desperately wanting to share my feelings about the song. So it's really just a matter of picking from a very long list of pieces of music that I feel I need to express differently. Uh, do you have like a priority list or do you pick things at random? Um, I have a list, but I very frequently will also just get inspired for some very random thing as well. So, for example, I did something from Portal 2 recently and that, that was totally out of nowhere. Um, I really like the Portal series, but it's totally different from my style. Uh, but I do have a list, a very, very, very long list of songs <laughs> to do. And sometimes I'll, I, I use Winamp, I'll, I'll make a random playlist on there, or I'll randomize the playlist of these songs and whatever comes on next, I'll do that. So when you arrange, do you, I mean, we talked about that when, when we discussed your, um, composition pro process i guess but like when you arrange things is it different like do you start with melody or chord progressions rhythm like how do you decide uh what elements are the most crucial to keep and what you can expand upon or change well, that's interesting it's i'm not always very conscious of what i'm doing it's it's, it's so organic um sometimes i it's very, it's kind of what I was talking about before. I, I see the the image in my mind of what I want to create, and I, I just base it on that. I, I think, okay, say, what would be a good example? I think I, I'll probably just describe a song I did. I did the, the theme for Marble from Chrono Cross. Do, do you know that song? For that oh, game? for sure. Yeah, okay. Well, I tried to combine both versions of Marble, mm -hmm. and... I think the beginning point is what do I want to say about this? How do I want the listener to feel? What emotion am I working with? And I also kind of get a color palette and marbles kind of beautiful seashell sunset colors. And I see this kind of textured image of the song. And I look at it as though it's a painting. And I see, okay, where is the eye going? Where is the eye going on this painting? And I'll emphasize that. So with that song, the intro I felt was very pale. It was kind of like the sheen on on a shell or something like that. So I made my intro just kind of long, soft, gently guiding you into the tune. And then as the melody picks up, I feel it getting a little bit darker. So I add percussion, a little bit, slightly bassier instruments. And then when we get to the chord change, there's a little bit more mystery. And to me that feels cooler, like watery colors. So I'll add in some sounds that almost seem like they're splashing to me or, or that they're scattering the texture that was there before. 
this might all sound like crazy talk, so I apologize if it does, but it's very, very hard to translate what I'm doing into words because it's, it's the, the audio-visual thing is so linked for me. It's almost like its own language. Now, the you or the and the listener can't see this, but I've been just grinning from ear to ear because I love hearing these things. It does not sound crazy at all, uh, not even remotely. I think it's fascinating. I think I've been called crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I don't believe in that. I think we are all very different. And especially when it comes to creative people, I absolutely like I adore listening to people like describe their process. That's one of the reasons why this podcast exists is I really want to know what goes on in the brains of other creative people. And hearing you describe it like this is fascinating to me. It's all, again, it's like you're describing a painting or like a, a scene that you're kind of like guiding the listener through. And yeah. I don't think it's crazy at all. I think it's fascinating. I'm telling a story. I want them to sit back and enjoy the trip. Yeah. And in that sense, I guess it's, Kind of similar to your audio drama in, in that you yeah. want to guide them through that story. Yeah, the, the philosophy videos are the same thing, actually. So I'm interested in the technical aspects of like what you do once you're done with the music, uh, specifically mixing and the stu like stuff like that. How do you approach that once you're done with a composition? I usually compose it in Noteworthy, but... I'll import the MIDI into my doll, which is uh, Ableton Live. And in there I can add a lot of effects and I use VSTs and other stuff like that to, to actually make it sound better. And I do all my mixing in there too. Are you self-taught at that as well? or? Yeah. Um, my brother uses Ableton Live. He used it before I did. So I just watched him using it and I figured it out. Oh. I guess that answers that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So I guess we enter into the more, I guess I would kind of describe this as the more difficult section of this interview, which is kind of like the darker side of music composition and creative things in general. And I want to start by asking you, I mean, I it's, it's clear to me that you are very often or almost almost constantly inspired and you have a lot of inspiration and a lot of creative drive but when inspiration does fail you like what do you do like for instance if you ever do get writer's block how do you deal with that i had to learn a lot about my own psychology and maybe just psychology in general over the years i've had a lot of experiences that were very troubling very difficult and I mean, we all have. Uh, I've always been an extremely emotional person. And that's partly why I've been so creative. I've always been very in touch with my emotion. And the worst experiences I've ever had involved me getting a little bit dissociated, out, taken outside of my sense of self, cut off from my emotions. Uh, during those experiences, I spent a lot of time just sort of introspecting, learning about myself, learning about how I think and everything, and learning in general about how the psyche really works. I, I'm going to say a bit more about this, but I just want to point out I've made probably about four different 
20 minute to hour long videos that talk about this at length. So I pretty much instructional videos about what to do about creative blogs and that sort of thing. And the Zelda series that I was talking about also goes in depth about this because the idea of creativity and motivation and the inner child and play and spontaneity, all of these things are connected. All of these things are a part of being human that we all too often are separated from. And I've spent a lot of time just learning about it, meditating or um, I, even going to counseling sometimes and having to deal with traumas I've had and everything like that. I really became aware that the inside of a person's mind is a very complicated place. It, it's, it can turn into something of a, a Zelda dungeon, so to speak. And when I started to look at it through that lens, I was able to have a better sense of control and understanding over my own psyche. So I guess you could say a lot of dungeoneering is required if you want to deal with creative block. Do you struggle at all with uh, imposter syndrome? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. guess we all do to a degree, but... Uh... <laughs> oh my God. I feel so unprofessional. <laughs> I feel like a weird alien child in an adult human body all the time. <laughs> I mean, I guess that goes for a lot of us, really. I don't think any of us think that we are the right level of professional. <laughs> I sometimes wonder, I, I talk to people, sometimes people I look up to and, and I, I have to ask now and then, what are you doing talking to me? <laughs> or um, somebody <laughs> will tell me that they might, they might say they look up to me or admire me and, and I'm always a little bit kind of taken aback. I, I look up to you. You don't feel that way about me, I look up to you. <laughs> <laughs> um. I guess this leads us kind of organically into the next question, which is, um, do you struggle at all with depression, anxiety, or anything like that that can like Im impact the creative process? And if you do, well, how do you deal with those things? I've dealt with a lot of both. Um, for a lot of people, one is worse than the other. Anxiety is definitely worse for me. And, uh, in the past, I did not deal with it in a healthy way. That's when the dissociation came about. I actually learned from a very, very early age to dissociate. And that was partly because, well, I talked about the synesthesia thing. I've dealt with sensory overload for a lot of my life. So um, noises, other people's emotions, other people's tone of voice, visuals, all these things really inundate me. And I've had to kind of be around a lot of anger and chaos in my life. And my solution to that was to retreat inward, very, very far inward. And in my case, I became productive in that mode. I, I delved into creating hardcore. In fact, I was creating too much. I was a workaholic. Um, so it had the illusion that nothing would stop me from creating, but I was actually causing a lot of damage to myself psychologically and physically by being a workaholic and turning my emotions off. And at one point I reached a kind of critical low 
and that's when depression really set in. Well, I won't say, I think this happened twice technically, but one time in particular, I had to take a break from social media and working and people and everything and just kind of put the pieces back together. Uh, so that that's what happened, that's what I experienced, how I deal with it. A lot of it was, I guess, learning to be more honest with myself about what I was feeling and to recognize the habits that I had that were making the situation worse. Dissociating was the worst of those habits, but probably the, the most helpful thing out of everything was learning, coming to recognize directly that the sensory overload thing was happening in the first place. Because once I realized that this was behind the scenes affecting everything, I could take steps to prevent myself from always being near the tipping point like that. Yeah, that must be exhausting. So this dissociating thing that you're talking about, I did watch the uh, uh, the video called On Trauma, Grief and Dissociative States, and I thought that was very fascinating, but I'm not entirely sure that I understand the concept of what dissociating means. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So everyone does it to some degree, but some people are more predisposed to it than others. And people who've experienced trauma are very, very predisposed to it. And people with certain psychological disorders are more disposed to it. But other than that, dissociating is compartmentalization of the mind. So when you're dissociated, you actually build walls inside the psyche that prevent you from experiencing all of yourself at a time. It's kind of like internal communication is partially shut down. And we do this to avoid pain and sometimes just avoid stress or it, we, it's kind of like a form of delusion. So for example, if the outer world is unbearable, we can't shut the world out, but we can shut ourselves in. So it's kind of like creating the illusion of safety. You become more abstracted. It's a partial dream state. So that's one aspect of it. So another aspect of dissociation is separation and proxy. So a really common experience that people have is that they're outside themselves looking inward. It's like, it's not you it's happening to, whether it's a stressful event or, or even something that's going on inside. You have this experience that Imagine you have a pencil and you're touching the wall with the pencil. You can feel the wall through the pencil, but you're not touching the wall directly. You can imagine that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yes. Dissociation is a lot like that, but the wall in this case is your own emotions or whatever you're trying to avoid. And it can, I mean... I'm sure you understand the human mind is an amazing thing. There's a lot of research about that. Things like uh, placebos and our ability to fool ourselves is so great that even just, uh, let's say, a normal 
for lack of a better term, healthy mind is constantly fooling itself because we've just evolved to do that. It's just more efficient. For example, we don't notice our nose, but your nose is always actually, you're always seeing your nose, but your brain filters it up. Um, dissociation is something that is an evolutionary response to pain. We can learn to filter stuff out. Now, things like mindfulness practices do the exact same thing. So if you're familiar with that, I am, yeah. That might make it more easy for you to understand. Dissociation is kind of like that same principle, but usually you're not as conscious of it. You don't have as much control over it. And that's why it's destructive, because it's something like that that just happens automatically. Sometimes you don't even know what's happening, and it kind of starts to run rampant. Hmm. Yeah, I guess our brains are very good at, like, constantly trying to deflect trauma and i i guess well i mean our brains want to protect us and they want they want to shield us from the things that that they don't want to kind of think about too much so i can i i can i can understand what this is all about kind of at, at least on a sort of a conceptual level and i think it's fascinating so i definitely want to urge anyone who's listening to go and check uh check out rebecca's videos about this because it is uh it is a very interesting subject there's one in particular, um, my Zelda psychology and philosophy one, the second one, it's called Masks and Altars. Mm -hmm. That one explains dissociation probably better than anything I've ever said. So, go and uh, go and look that up, people. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know what to say, but I think it's fair to just watch it <laughs> because it's it's a whole <laughs> hour's worth of information. So. No, I, I think that's that's great. Uh, do check that out, people. Um, wow, it's always difficult to kind of like move through these because it feels like every every one of these sections kind of like need their own huge amount of time to kind of go through. <laughs> but I'm going to move on to the next section here, which is criticism and how you deal with that. Because, And I guess this is a very intentionally kind of broad topic, but I want to give you a platform here to kind of like talk about how you deal with feedback. Uh, we put ourselves out there and our work out there and we let people listen to it and react to it. And sometimes people are, for lack of a better word, just dicks about it. And I kind of want to know, have you had to deal with any kind of particularly bad criticism? Uh, and how did you deal with that, in that if that was the case? It's interesting um, because... Every YouTuber has the experience when they first start out, that first thumbs down, it just feels so bad, you know? Mm -hmm. But over time, you, you start ignoring it. You start realizing it's not personal. A lot of the time, people would hit the thumbs down for a reason that I wouldn't. So, for example, I remember I saw a video somewhere, and it, it was a very beautiful piece of music. It was just jazz. And then someone in the comments says, I don't like jazz, so thumbs down for me. It makes you wonder, what were they doing on the video in the first place, right? <laughs> yeah, that's <And> so strange. <laughs> yeah, so I don't really take it personally, because I think nine times out of ten, the person has not given it any thought. They're not sitting there seething with hatred. Well, like, most of them aren't, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, some of them are, but... <laughs> yeah, but, but that's the thing. If they're seething with hatred, they're not giving you an authentic, unbiased review. 
And if they're not giving you any real consideration, then they're not giving you a proper review either. So it's, I have had some comments that were hurtful, but they're only hurtful when they're true, if that makes sense, when, when you realize it was a failing. And even then, when you understand what you did wrong, when you fully get it and you fully agree, you have to just kind of concede, yeah, you're right. It sucks, but you're right, you know. Um, I've had some really nasty comments. I usually just delete them. It's like My comment section is not a democracy. If you're going to say a bunch of ridiculous, hurtful stuff, then I'm going to delete your comment, you know. Yep, I think that's very healthy. Yeah, and I, I guess the most annoying ones are when you get criticism that's very ignorant or untrue. I like I remember this one guy, he gave me a real rant about one of the medleys I made and some of the examples of critique he gave were this should have been a French horn. Huh. So it's so like very subjective, very personal opinion stated as fact. Right. <laughs> that sort of criticism yeah, no, is annoying. No, that's 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 the thing I'm talking about here because I mean sometimes these things are I meant meant to be constructive. Like I didn't like this passage because there's a French horn in it, or you know, this like the French horn couldn't play that high up or that high or that low or something like that. I guess I guess that's something that you could take to heart. But if it's like, I think there should have been a French horn there, and then you're being a, a dick about it, I I guess it's yeah. kind of. It, at that point, it, it is. It's kind of funny. I, I don't really think of them as humans leaving comments. I think of them as moblins. <laughs> They're just passing <laughs> through. It's like, how That's can amazing. I make... The Moblin passes through and says, how do I make this about me? Right. Oh, man. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that answers that. I don't really care about criticism because either they're right, in which case I agree with them. Fine, right? Or they're mm -hmm. a Moblin, in which case it's funny. <laughs> or that they are so far removed from having an objective, unbiased opinion that what they have to say doesn't really count. I guess I was going to ask how you choose to engage with these uh, these uh, comments, uh, mostly because the few videos where I looked in your comment sections, uh, I saw you talking, like discussing things or replying to a few of them. And, you know, it's it was a mostly kind comment section, so it didn't really, you know, seem weird yeah. or anything. But like, how do you engage with these people, if, if at all? Well, most of my comments are actually very positive, so I guess I'm lucky. Um, if it's really nasty, I delete it. So I, I don't. Have, they're not interested in a real discussion with me. I'm not going to give them one. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in having my time wasted by somebody who is just trying to power trip me. Right. No, I I get that. I I really do. If, if they give me constructive criticism, then I'll I'll reply, and whatever it depends on the context. I'll just say, oh, you're right, or oh it was this way because of this. I'll give them an explanation if I think an explanation is warranted or I'll just concede to what they say. I was going to ask if you feel uh, or if you ever feel like completely drained of energy after like a bad interaction if you and how you pull yourself back up. But I, I, you seem to have a very like good kind of stable system to deflect the worst of, of the comments. Yeah, so if it's really bad, there have been times when comments have been like legitimately depressing or offensive uh but for the most part it's just a moblin 
And it's when I think of it that way, it's funny. I would like our listeners to please kind of take that on board <laughs> because that is such a wholesome and good thing to think. <laughs> I also sometimes picture them as zingers from Donkey Kong. Oh, right. Yeah. They just kind of hum angrily next to you. It's a little bit tense. <laughs> just going up and down next to a barrel. Yeah. <laughs> In the background. Oh, it's, that's it's amazing. A, it's a, a white noise of like um, kind of lukewarm negativity yeah because i feel like some of these people really think that they are contributing to the conversation as and as soon as they kind of perceive yeah, they, themselves they to they be just silenced. want it to be about them yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, I just because they they feel like they have been silenced and their very important voice like were wasn't like allowed to be heard but uh, yeah i guess maybe it's just their self-importance acting up i don't know well it might be right? i i know at least for me, I, if somebody makes something in a different style from what I wanted, I don't feel the need to tell them. So I don't understand what that would achieve. I mean, I, I, I would go as far as to say that I don't really understand like the function of the thumbs down. I mean, yeah, of course, if it's like completely <laughs> of offensive yeah. content on YouTube, but it's like, I don't like this. If that's my response, I kind of just move on to another video that I would rather watch. I don't. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So to round this all off here, um, for the audience listening, uh, the creative people who are listening to this podcast, I guess if you have any inspiring words for them, if they're struggling, if they don't quite know how to keep going, to keep creating, do you have anything do you want to, you want to tell them? First of all, it's really important to understand the difference between quality and popularity. A lot of musicians are out there or creative people in general, just kind of impatiently waiting for somebody to notice them. And I know, I know what that's like. And it's very important to understand there is a degree of luck involved. Most of the people who've made it big have either submitted to the format entirely, or they've been lucky enough that their work has been discovered by something. Um, for example, I've had a couple of my remixes posted on uh, like Zelda and Former and, and places like that, and I got more views on YouTube from things like that than anything else. And it's not really a mark of a person's quality whether or not someone has discovered them. That's a very good thing to keep in mind, I think. I also think it's really important for everyone to create the thing that they truly want to create especially if you're suffering from a creative block. It's extremely important to remember who you are, what you're really passionate about, what you really want to say. I think we get really wrapped up in what we perceive that we ought to be doing. Sometimes we, we try too hard to submit to a format or we're too much of a perfectionist. But if there's no joy in it, First of all, it probably won't be as good. It probably won't move as many people. But secondly, you're going to start freezing. You, you, the waters will flow if you allow yourself to be playful. I would almost say that quality isn't as important as authenticity when it comes to art. Maybe some people wouldn't agree with that. But um, <laughs> I think the reason I've created so much stuff is because... 
I just do whatever feels joyful in the moment. I, I think, what do I want to read? What do I want to listen to? What do I want to look at? And I create that. And I think a lot of the best art is done that way. When I'm not saying my art is some of the best art, but just in general. There will be no self-deprecation on this podcast, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm qualified to make that statement as well. But, <laughs> I think um, it's an amazing thing to say, to tell people. And I think a lot of people, myself included, do, near, do need to hear that. That it's ab about creating what we love and, and, and keeping in touch with our playful selves. I really think that's important. Yeah. All right. So where... Finally, you have the chance to plug yourself as much as you want. So where do you, f you where do you exist on the interwebs? <laughs> um, I've, I think my YouTube channel is the main thing. So it's Rebecca E. Trip on YouTube, all one word. And I exist in other places, but that, that's the main hub where I think most of my work can be found. I also have a Facebook page, which... Um, is linked to on um, my YouTube videos. Do you have the same username for that or? It's actually Crystal Echo Sound, which is the same as what my website was, which will be back up one day when I renew it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it can be found looking up Rebecca Etrip as well. All right, well, I guess everything that's left to do for me is to thank you so, so much for being a guest on The Hummingbirds. No, thank you for having me, Frederick. And uh, I wish you the very best of luck in your future creative endeavors. And, uh, you know, keep being awesome. Keep being yourself. <laughs> yeah, same to you. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of The Hummingbirds. New episodes are hosted on hummingbirds.podbean.com and you can also find them on iTunes. Follow us at hummingbirdspod on Twitter for news about the show. We also have a Facebook page that you can find by searching for the username Hummingbirds Pod. The theme for the podcast was originally written by me and, for this episode, remixed by Rebecca Tripp. See you next time.